Welcome to the To Your Bible, a custom design to your Bible reading plan, weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so we are continuing in Joshua, and uh, we'll get into the end of First Thessalonians and the Second Thessalonians today. And so hopefully you've uh, enjoyed this week of reading and um, are continuing to see the Israelites win some battles. Um, as, mm-hmm. well, as well as a few screw-ups along the way, but that's just part of the story. Right. So they just crossed the Jordan River, and now this new generation of men is to be circumcised. Yeah, and it's peculiar. The language talks about they're circumcised again for a second time, and um, this is sort of gets back to, to my questions around Moses's uncircumcised moment and whether they've got a, a wrong kind of circumcision. So um, it's just a thought and there's a lot of thoughts on that, but uh, apparently coming into this promised land, they would be um, rightfully carry the sign of the, the covenant that mm-hmm. they are, uh, they have people. with Yahweh. And so, um, which, yeah, if you're going to enter in, it, it is interesting. Sarah brought this up a moment ago, like they're about to go into their battles um, or, 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 or really have their, their fights, but um, they get circumcised before the battle. Yeah, like which, in enemy territory. It's crazy. They don't like wait to cross the Jordan. They're like, let's stay in safe places and take care of this. They which, cross the Jordan. Which should remind you of a Genesis story of of uh, uh, this whole tribe that gets conquered because they mm-hmm. do circumcision before, um, not before a battle, but they get conquered because they're weak because of their circumcision. So uh, it's pretty interesting. But anyways, uh, and then they get the first Passover in yeah. Canaan, which they are instructed to, to do, to celebrate. And so... Um, yeah. yeah, this sort of um, transition, once again, thought that they would celebrate the first ta- Passover. Uh, manna finally is ended, uh, which I'm sure they're happy about. They grumbled about that enough in the desert, uh, and I'm sure they're happy to eat some real food. Uh, well, I guess manna is real food, but I'm sure they're ready to get a different flavor in their mouth. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so it's yeah. a celebration. It's, it's cool to see how they are entering into a new season or a new stage of their places God's people and it begins not by going to battle but by you know parting the seas crossing the river yeah circumcision representing God's covenant and then feasting on God's provision yep and then Joshua gets his own burning bush moment in this Mm -hmm. encounter with God it's take off your shoes kind of moment um and uh yeah there'll be there'll be parallels throughout the book of of Moses and Joshua but um yeah I, I love the response there of like Whose side are you on? And no, <laughs> no, from the angel, which is great. I mean, God's God, God's not on people's sides. Like Israel God can choose to God. be on God's side, um, and uh, if they're obedient, they're on God's side, and when they're disobedient, they're they're not. And but God's got His side um, and His mission, which has already been laid out. My my goal is to ultimately bless the, all the nations, and so um, you're either on my side or you're not. Yeah, I mean, and that can be a good caution for us in some areas where we think like maybe God is on our side politically or our side in some sort of argument, and we know what is righteous and what is right before God, but God is on God's side no matter what, and so it's more like whose side are we on, not whose side is God on. And so they encounter their first city, and you got to imagine they've been fighting all these major fights. They've been taking out kings left and right, and now they end up into this town, and God has told uh, uh, Joshua how he's going to win this battle. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I can't imagine being Joshua and then returning to the people going, okay, here's what God said we need to do. And it's like not militaristic at all. It's, 
hey, you priest, you need to walk around the building once a, week, once a day and you can't talk and it's going to be quiet. And the seventh day, we're going to blow some horns and we're all going to yell and these walls are going to fall. And um, it's, it's such a peculiar, uh, I can't imagine him telling that. And I also can't imagine like the, the people in Jericho like watching all this happen. It's like, right. They're, they're so fearful of being conquered. And the They've, first like, thing to see all is their like, gates and these weird looking priests carrying around this box once a day and quiet and be like, uh, what's happening here? And so, um, it, it's so interesting, but I think it's driving home. Look, it's not your military might that's going to win these battles. And like their right. very first fight on, in the promised land is going to drive that home. That it's not by, by spears and by might. It, it is by the Lord giving them total victory. Yeah. And, and I think let's remember too, that Jericho had 400 years to repent and then even seven days of watching these people walk around their city, they could have turned around and repented, asked for forgiveness and even given peace and and there would have been forgiveness available to them. We see it in Rahab. So it's not this brutal taking down of, of anybody and everybody, but there's always an opportunity to repent. Uh, and so, yeah, they practice harem, which is sort of the, the wiping out of the, the people and the supplies. They are not to take anything, uh, which we will find out somebody did and it causes a problem. But, um, yeah. And so, uh, they win that first battle and then they go off to fight, uh, in I, um, which, uh, they will not win their first battle right. in I, um, and they find out there's something in their midst. Somebody stole something in their midst and then Joshua does magical guessing in some ways uh, to and figure did you out guys kind of like when you read it and you saw the butt they did all this but did you kind of feel the sinking feeling in your stomach like oh so soon so soon yeah and and so we find out through this process of of maybe asking everyone that it confesses up and says look i i, I took silver from uh from jericho and so uh this becomes a bit of a refrain to me uh like you read about the flood and noah and then the first thing that happens is they screw up on the other side and we read about uh kind of the sinai and the first thing that happens at the giving of the law is they start building a calf we hear about the building of the tabernacle the first thing that happens is aaron's sons screw it up they get into the promised land aiken screws it up the the, the early church gets established and ananias and sapphira are uh, lying about land and so mm-hmm. it seems like at some of these huge turning points throughout the narrative of scripture there's always sort of this moment to go okay like i need you to grasp the seriousness of what god is doing god is doing it for us it is it is a movement of god right now and um, we can't just be haphazard about god's uh, uh in obedience to, to God in this moment. And it's not necessarily normative from that point on for all these stories for, for people, people will continue to screw up and God is continuing to be gracious, but it's sort of like at these turning points, it's like a drive home of what God is doing. Yeah. And you know, the entire community was involved in bringing justice to Achan because they had all been defiled. When you think about it, 36 men died because of Achan's sin. Um, and one of the questions I had was if, just Achan was punished or if their whole family was stoned. And I guess, you know, the scripture here is kind of inconclusive. The word them could have been just his children, but it also could have been them being the things that Achan brought out. So um, yeah, I would, I would lean towards because of what we just read in Deuteronomy, that it was just Achan who was yeah. stoned and not his whole family. Unless his family was still in two. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, and so we get the fall of I. So uh, eventually they turn around and do defeat them. Sort of a classic military tactic here, sort of baiting them out and then ambushing them from behind. And, and we get the do not fear repeated again, mm-hmm. which we get all throughout this book. Um, and Joshua has sort of another Moses move. He sort of lifts up his spear and victory happens in, in the midst of that, just like Moses held the staff over his head during the victory uh, earlier in battle. And so 
They hang the kings, uh, which if we go back to Deuteronomy, cursed as the one hanging from the tree. They sort of cursed these kings throughout this book. Um, and yet Joshua doesn't leave him there, uh, which I think is speaks to a little bit of sort of the dignity in life and death that that is still given. Uh, that yeah. The king is given a burial. He's not left up so that others would see the victory of the Israelites. No, he's he's given a, a proper response, even, even in his death. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And we get a renewal of, of the, covenant. the covenant. And so this is fulfilling what Deuteronomy 27 said to do, uh, mm-hmm. that they would set up these standing stones. We'll include an image in our show notes of standing stones. Uh, they would read the law uh, all together, everybody, and they would sh- stand on these hills and shout and do their own thing. And um, it's such a beautiful, it's like an amphitheater, these two hills, and they would have clearly heard themselves, and it would have been pretty incredible. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and and just step back for a second and put yourself in Rahab's shoes. Uh, How did she feel? She heard about and was terrified of Yahweh. uh, And through faith, she was delivered from death and she was given home among Israel. But her first experience was then seeing Israel get demolished by these soldiers and I. And and then they turned around. She saw Achan get stoned and then Israel turned around, defeated I. And then they build an altar to Yahweh and she hears the law read for the first time. Think about her whole kind of journey and story and experience in this. It's, it's really different than probably her previous life and pagan practices. Yeah, for certain. And so we get introduced to the Gibeonites, who uh, are pretty smart individuals. And they, uh, uh, I don't know if they happen to know about some of the parts of the law, but they, they know, um, they, they act like a foreign group, uh, a group that's traveling through. And uh, in so doing, Deuteronomy 20 has given instruction to the Israelites that they are to, to deal with the Canaanites, but those from other cities have a much different sort of uh, leniency. And, and so they kind of get tricked into... Um, covenanting with this group of Gibeonites uh, to to not destroy them like they are doing the rest of the Canaanites, um, and at that point on, once they realize they're tricked, like they they obey it, and it's mm-hmm. a difficulty. What do they obey now? Do they obey the original command to wipe out the Canaanites, even though um, these people lied to them, or do they obey the command to keep an oath? Because we've heard plenty of laws about keeping oaths, and so they they decide to obey the keeping oath deal uh, from that point on. And we'll hear the Gibeonites again when we get into Samuel, but. Um, Israel doesn't kill them and instead makes them workers of wood and drawers of water. And so, which is uh, a pretty fascinating fulfillment of Noah's curse. So, Noah's cursed Canaan to be the slave of Shem in Genesis 9. And we're seeing that fulfilled here. Yep. And then uh, we hear about these five kingdoms of Canaan and joining forces. Now, I, I want you to visually put in your brain that this is probably a little more. Um, ancient in terms of warfare and groups than we tend to think. I mean, this is. A lot of these, I mean, Israel themselves are still a nomadic people, setting up tents, taking down tents. They don't have buildings. They're, they've been moving around in the desert for so many years. Like, um, and not only that, but but their their weapons are not very modern, and so um, their wood and and things like that. They don't have a lot of metal workers, and we'll find out plenty of that by the time we get to David. And 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 they are pretty ancient in terms of who they are. And the Canaanites are not that much different. When you get to the coastland, they're a little more modern, but um, they're, they're old school. Like um, I, I think the best analogy is to almost think of like um, uh, uh, Native Americans in America in like the 16, 1500s. Like it is spears and maybe arrows. It, it is, it is crude weaponry. Um, and, and this is, the, the groups that they're battling and the kings when they're named kings are, are like the military leaders that rode to power in these, in these towns and in these outposts. And so, um, 
it's probably a bit more of a ruthless collection of people than we tend to think. I think we go very medieval sometimes in our brains, mm-hmm. at least I do, um, versus very ancient. And so, I mean, we are 3,000 years before medieval in some ways. And so, um, yeah. So um, just yeah. just to think about when you visualize in your brain a little bit of what's going on. Yeah. And we um, see this heavenly victory. It wasn't Israel's might and power, but Yahweh's authority over creation yeah. through hail, through the sun standing still that these kings were defeated. Yep. Yep. God controls the natural world. Um, and so, uh, and we get a quote out of a book that we don't know what it is. Um, there's a lot of thoughts on that, but uh, it's going to come up again. Seems to have been an ancient book that people knew about, but it is what it is. So yeah. in case you read that and you're like, what is this book? And so, um, anyways, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. Uh, <laughs> just guesses. But the kings are killed. Uh, once again, they're also hung. They're, they're taken out of their hiding place. They're hung. They're thrown back into their hiding place as well. And so, um, and then we get kind of a fast forward mm-hmm. of all these conquests in the sun. So the Amorite kings are killed. So let's take over all the Amorite lands. And so uh, they go down. They take all the Amorite lands right away, all these cities one by one. And then they conquest to the northern side of Canaan. Uh, so um, there's a bunch of tribes up there. Uh, they gather to fight. Once again, we get the reminder, do not be afraid. Um, and at this point, it's, it's only the Gibeonites. And we're reminded, only the Gibeonites have made peace at this point and everybody else is, is dealt yeah, with. Yeah, but they were given yeah. those offers. And I think one of the neat things that happens here that we read about is that they hamstrung the horses and they burn the chariots, um, which is you know making the horses unfit for war and destroying these war vehicles. It is a declaration that we will continue to depend on the Lord for our victory and not for our military might and power. They're not increasing or growing their military skill here. They're still continuing to trust God. Yeah. And so um, we, we hear about all the kings. We sort of get a rehash uh, in chapter 12 of here are the kings that Moses took care of. Here are the kings that Joshua took care of. But we're also reminded in verse 19 that there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except basically the Gibeonites and the Hivites. And, and so uh, the, there's – even though it might have been silent in the narrative as we went, this seems to be a hint that everywhere they went, there was this opportunity to be made peace as as they were instructed to do. Uh, but no one did it. And Israel ultimately dealt with the people that were squatting on God's land. So. Yeah. And, and I just want to take this moment as a reminder to remember what genre we are reading here in Scripture. We are reading historical narrative, which means that we don't read this. And we've said this before, but I'm saying it again. We don't read this and apply it literally. We don't feel like there's a land we want and march around it seven times or feel like we need to start some sort of holy war or crusade to claim land in the power or the name of God. This is not why this is written, and this is not something that we are to interpret or to apply to our own lives or modern day literally. Yep. Yeah. And so, well, and we have our own unique as believers definition of what the promised land is now. So, yeah. Um, and the kings are defeated uh, by Joshua. We hear about the 31 kings there. Um, and we also hear that there's land still to be conquered. Um, Joshua's getting old. Um, he's he's starting mm-hmm. to delegate some of that conquering. He's like, hey, you dele- you kill the rest of the people in, in wherever your tribe goes. And you kill the people in where your tribe goes. So uh, instead of working all together, he sort of uh, passes it on a little bit. But we start getting a map of the territories. Yeah. And so um, you've already seen a little bit of a map, but here's a map again. We'll, we'll include a link as well. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think as we sort of get this layout of territories, uh, I Yes, it's a little bit boring to sometimes go through the map, but at the same time, like God, 
God is specific and God has laid out each of these country, each of these um, tribes in certain places for certain roles with certain times and certain boundaries to do certain tasks. Like there, there, God has um, plans and, and, and details and he cares about the details um, of these people. And, and it just reminds me of acts that we read recently from one man came all nations and they should inhabit the whole earth. And he has marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. And God did this. So um, they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. And so, um, yeah. And I think, go ahead. Oh yeah. Go. As you just referenced, you know, we have this other promised land. We don't, it's not a, a place here on earth. As you read this, anticipate what is to come and that there, you know, this is a parallel. This is our story that we will inherit this heavenly land. And so it's probably not going to be divvied out by lots in the same way, but it is something we can read in anticipation of, of when that day will come and we get to inherit. Yeah. Our, a new earth. earth. We, we yeah. get to inherit the new earth with the new heaven and sort of all of it beautifully um, restored, restored. Yeah. Or, or recreated in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we hear about the three tribes that get the, the area on the east of the Jordan, but also this group on the west of the Jordan. Uh, if there's a reminder of why the tribes are the breakdown and not exactly the 12 sons, uh, Joseph gets a double portion of inheritance. We, we mm-hmm. find that in Genesis 48. And so his sons sort of break out the, the double inheritance uh, between themselves. And so, um, yeah. And then we see them doing it with the team, like you mentioned, which is yeah. really good. Yeah, and then Caleb makes a request. Yeah, and Caleb, Caleb representing Judah, and Judah certainly has has um, a big role to play in the history of Israel, particularly in in battles and conquest. And he's sort of like, "Hey, uh, I know there's these giants in the land, but hey, give me the land, we'll go get them." And uh, they do. And so Judah, Judah will be one of the tribes that stays the longest in history uh, in terms of a people. So. Yeah. yeah. So some things to remember here, they were in the desert for 38 years. And what we've just read in Joshua spans a time of about seven years yep. for them to do this Canaanite land conquest. All right. Let's jump to the New Testament, First Thessalonians into Second Thessalonians. So we wrap up the letter of First Thessalonians. I know it feels weird to break and then just as a finish with the benedictions, mm-hmm. but this is a bit of a benediction. We kind of get this big junk drawer of almost a lot of Christian conduct of be respectful to your leaders. Don't fight with each other. Uh, uh, don't repay evil for evil. Rejoice, pray, be thankful, all these sort yeah. of things. And so... Um, they're, they're all great and they're all good instructions in and of themselves. It's just not worth it on this podcast to like parse out every single one of them and what they should mean. But, um, yeah, in summary, avoid evil, do good and, and be holy and, and ready for the mm-hmm. coming of the Lord. That's sort of the, the finale there. Yeah. Don't, don't fly through these so quickly just to check off your reading from the list that you neglect to reflect on what of these things you need to work on or pray for and what things you're doing okay in, but learn from these letters the same way that the Thessalonians learned from Paul's letters. Yeah. So what are your final thoughts on this book? First Thessalonians, while well, like you just mentioned, I feel like we flew through it. I liked the emphasis on imitational discipleship. It's more than just sitting down for an hour a week with somebody and having coffee, but Paul and others invited them into their lives. It's where it's a family where your personal self is shared as well. And I think also that Paul's exhortations towards action are still really centered in the work of Christ. And I liked his emphasis there. He speaks of the word of God being at work in believers, sanctification being produced because it's God's will, loving one another because we are taught by God. And even one of his last lines, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. We are to lean into and constantly be dependent on the Lord for all things, even as we exercise self-control and we work against our flesh to represent Christ in what we do. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's um, it's tough when you take something. I mean, I, I preached a series in this book, and so that was about thirteen weeks of a series, and we just covered it in about thirty minutes, and so or less than that. And so, yeah, it feels like a, a flyby. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was yeah. our in in this podcast, our in in the reading plan, the introduction to the writings of Paul, and um, and, and this seems like an early letter as you read it. Um, uh, he's not. He's not very uh, robust in sort of his theological arguments here. He's not presenting these deep, huge truths necessarily all the time. He's dealing with a few of their questions, and he's being extremely pastoral. He's expressing a lot of emotion for these people, Um, and and he's very contextual to to the city. And so I think as we continue to read letters, I think that's important too. Like we saw sort of how they came to faith and sort of uh, these conversions of these uh, very Gentile believers as well as um, these Jews, but there's also some Caesar struggles that cause them to get get in trouble there. We see Paul reference Caesar, I think, in as the letter goes. And so um, there's some contextualization that I think really draws out um, how to read Paul's letters that much better. Mm, that's good. And so, yeah, second jump into Second Thessalonians. Thessalonians. So, yeah. um, so it was written shortly after First Thessalonians and really with a strong emphasis on the coming of the Lord. Yeah. So it sounds like some of the church believed that the day of the Lord had already come and Paul wanted to assure them that it had not and also wanted to continue to encourage them because they were still facing lots of persecution. Yeah. And we're sort of introduced with a pretty standard greeting, uh, a pretty standard opening for Paul. Sometimes its openings require a little more explanation, but, but this one's so similar to the last letter. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't need to dive into that. Um, and Paul's still opening with Thanksgiving. Call yeah. commends them and just how much they love each other. which And then um, it's increasing, which yeah. is awesome. We. Yeah. Oftentimes we'll hear the opposite from other letters to churches. Yeah. You guys are fighting more and more and more, but uh, the Thessalonians are getting along more and more and more. Yeah. And so, um, but he's also very pastoral. Uh, As as we noted, like this is a town that's probably really struggling, uh, these believers in the city, uh, because they're they're turning from their idols of the city are probably causing all sorts of havoc in their lives. And others seem to be... um, causing problems in the church and maybe even the folks from philippi have sent other people to thessalonica to cause problems there who knows but they're they're obviously struggling there's obviously some sort of persecution Mm -hmm. and um paul paul encourages them by by saying look like um it may not be good now but but god will have his vengeance um injustice will be dealt with and and um he sort of points to the future in that of of instead of sort of the 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 prosperity gospel sort of message of like, hey, it'll work out soon. Uh, it's sort of like, it may not work out, but God will have his vengeance eventually. Mm-hmm. Like, um, So you may suffer until you die, uh, but um, that doesn't mean that that unjust suffering has no answer in the end. Right, so I like, think keep enduring. Keep it's a good it. reminder that God sees all and there will be a consequence for everyone's actions. Yeah, We do need to keep enduring a persecution and suffering yeah, it's it's a difficulty of modern day when we see injustice and 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 there's I think we have to hold two things at the same time. We have to hold the fact that um, injustice is wrong. We should expose it. We should speak about it. Yeah. But we also don't respond to the injustice with equal injustice. I mean, Jesus is pretty clear in in the Sermon on the Mount on that that um, we we don't fight violence with more violence, but um, but we do we do speak about the injustice. But we also rest in the fact that. Our answer to that injustice may not happen on this side of eternity or this time of our life, that um, that there is an answer to the injustice. And it may come during our lifetime, and it may not. And are we okay with either one of those? And um, 
yeah, it's, yeah, it's so a struggle. Coming out of this, I think we continue to endure suffering with grace, knowing that there will be a reward for us and it's worth every single difficulty. And then we also leave the retribution up to God. Yeah. And 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 it's 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 an answer to sin and wickedness and evil that many other worldviews don't have a clear answer to. Mm-hmm. And um and as much as sometimes we don't we sometimes try to placate the idea of the justice of God, like that is an answer to injustice in the world. Yeah. And so um, it's it's a position of privilege or something like that to sometimes go, oh, I just don't feel comfortable about the justice of God. Well, clearly you're not in a people group that is oppressed because people groups that are oppressed are going, we need God's justice to come right away uh, around all these injustices. And so, um, yeah, anyways. Yeah. Diatribe over, uh, and so there's this man of lawlessness. Yeah, I'll start a new diatribe. So there's the, <laughs> these two letters of Thessalonians create a whole world of theology around, um, like the Left Behind style book series, and um, it. I dealt with a little bit of it in this first letter. I'm going to deal with it here. Like sometimes it's just a really poor dealing with, with text that honestly, this text is a bit clunky. The Greek is clunky. It's hard to parse out. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of ways to construct these sentences, but um, what I think is happening, at least in this story, in this moment is you have these Jews and we mentioned this when we went to the gospel of Luke, you have Jewish people in history and, and their eschatology is two part for the most part. It's, it's, you have the phase from the garden until the Messiah comes. And then when the Messiah comes one day, uh, that will change things and usher in this new age where uh, Israel will live in peace, that um, God, the Messiah will reign, everything will be better. And and it's just that two phase. And uh, it's pretty common in Israel theology or in Jewish theology. And so when Jesus comes along, he starts correcting that in some of his teaching. He starts teaching parables like uh, the, the the weeds and the wheat and, and all these kind of things that show a picture that he's speaking of a time between his return, like the harvest, and, and when he was first here as this mixed time. And I think these Jewish people are really struggling understanding that. And they're like, so is the day the Lord already came? Like, did he come? Like, we we were told the Messiah came, but it doesn't seem like things are getting better. If anything, it kind of seems like things are getting worse and mm-hmm. we're getting persecuted and things are rough. So like, do we miss the day of the Lord? Is it still to come? And I think they're struggling with that. And I think Paul's coming along to go, no, 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 no. Let, let me clarify this and, and make sure that you have this three-part eschatology. The, 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 the eschatology is about sort of the end of things. Um, this three idea phase of the Old Testament, this kind of New Testament dual kingdom, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man is happening at the same time. And then eventually, and so, um, and he's saying, look, that day has not come yet. The, the final culmination day. Um, and, and before then, there's this rebellion. There's this sin. There's this brokenness. There's these days where, where there's a man of lawlessness. Now, I think what I think Paul's doing is personifying this, this idea yeah. um, that there are some who, who, reject God, who take up their position of being gods. They're, they are lawless. They are sinful. There's rebellion in that. Now, the Thessalonians might have immediately gone, oh, when I, when I hear that, I think of Caesar because it's personified. Um, and maybe modern day, some people think of whatever president or whatever. And, and I don't think that's necessarily what Paul's after versus the idea that between now and when Jesus returns, there will be things that are anti- Jesus, Antichrist, and, and they will continue until that day. And, and some of them are already here. Paul even says, for the mystery of lawlessness, this is already at work. So right. for the Thessalonians, they wouldn't think, oh, there's a guy coming in 2,000 years who will usher in the end times um, by 
by destroying everything first. It, no, they would have thought, oh, like there's something happening now that this man of lawlessness is doing. And, and so there would have been immediately that idea, um, whether it's opposing culture, things that are working against Jesus, maybe it's Caesar, maybe it's the papacy, as some people will interpret it. Maybe maybe it's all those things, but that there's, there's a time we will live in and, and we shouldn't be surprised about it that there's things working against Jesus and and we live in those and and to have a clear understanding of of we're in those days right now so yeah i think the lesson for us too is is first of all to understand that the second coming of christ is really foundational doctrine that we don't talk about it a lot just even think about the last prayer in scripture john says come lord jesus we long for christ's second coming to see all things made right and what do we learn here is that the lawless one comes with power and with false signs and wonders and it deceives and deceives those who are perishing but the people who hold firm and stand strong is because they love the truth those who fall away refuse to love the truth so the the exhortation to us is saying how much how much are we loving the truth? And for us to love the truth, we have to know the truth. It's this idea of this counterfeit bill. Like we we only know what is true if we have studied it. Yeah. And and memorize it and it's written on our hearts. Yeah. And and I, I think the 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 ancient application of that text like makes sense when he goes, So stand firm. Like yeah. if it was about some future thing that's going to come thousands of years later, th- that application makes no sense versus going, okay, like there is sin and brokenness in the world. We are in this phase right now. But stand firm, keep at it. Justice will play itself out when he finally does return. And 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 so keep going. Like I know it's hard, but keep going. Yeah. And and standing firm, you know, we are to stand firm in what we know of God, in the truth of Scripture, to continue to study that, and standing firm in the midst of suffering and persecution. Because for the Thessalonians, that that wasn't going away. And for us, no matter, you know, some of us are experiencing that now and some of us are not, but surely our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are. So even if you don't feel like you need to stand firm in persecution at this moment, pray for those who are. Yeah. So, So when we're crying out, like the psalmists do, like... God, where is your justice? Like yeah. we have an answer to it. It just may not be as swift or as moment uh, in the moment as we want it to be. And um, but there's hope and there's victory on the other side of and it. And there's comfort so, yeah. from God. And, yeah, there's peace that comes with that. And so that's where Paul sort of goes next. Of of uh, pray for the gospel to go forth. Pray that others start hindering. And and he just speaks to this confidence he has in these Thessalonians. Um, yeah. Yeah. He he gives a really good structure in how we can pray for others. Pray that the word of the Lord may spread ahead. That the word of the Lord may be honored. And that the evangelist may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Pray those. Uh, pray that for people you know. Yeah, and and sort of a, at a at a last minute, he's sort of like, oh, well, there's all these people that I've just encouraged to work hard. Let me remind you, some of you aren't working at all, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe they're waiting for Jesus to return. Maybe they're just abusing the Roman uh, patronage system, whatever it may be. But there's people not working right now, and um, and Paul's encouragement is is t- to keep going. That he doesn't encourage their laziness by indulging it. He he sort of calls out, and it's interesting because I think Paul plays both sides here. He sort of goes, all right, there's so, so, some of you who are not participating in the life of community like 
working, meeting needs, uh, contributing, whatever it may be, you're, you're just taking advantage of the generosity of people. And then he turns to the people that I think are being generous and he says, don't grow weary in doing good. Like, yes, you people who are taking advantage of people need to keep work. You, you can't just sit back and live off of other people. You need to participate in this family with, with, and, and every family member contributes. But some of you are, are also being generous and caring for people. And I don't want to dissuade you from doing good. I, I want you to continue to not grow weary in that. And yeah. So, and and he says all of this because his, his fundamental concern is the advance of the gospel. And he's right. making a connection here that this idleness and laziness is hurting the spread of the gospel. It's hurting their Christian witness. Yeah. Uh, so let's be people who are hard workers in what we do. I mean, we learn in Colossians, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart is working for the Lord. Uh, yep. We represent Christ even in the work we do. Yep. And then and, another benediction. Yeah. And, and it says, peace. It's really driving home. I want you guys to have peace, which once again, a great prayer for those that um, are, are struggling in the midst of chaos and persecution. Yeah. Final thoughts? So I think even just the way we just talked through it, I saw the flow to Second Thessalonians much better than I'd seen it in the ways that I studied it. Um, I think you know, Paul is not nearly as warm and gentle in this letter as he was in First Thessalonians, but he's very clearly um, assuring them I loved reading how much he wanted to encourage and assure them in their salvation that they don't need to be afraid of missing it because they know it's truth. And even their steadfastness and suffering is an indicator of their salvation and their faith. So it comes back to trusting God in and over all things. We trust that he's increasing our faith and our steadfastness. We trust that he's growing in us a love for the truth and that he is going to sanctify us through the spirit. He is currently sanctifying us through the spirit. He's going to comfort us and will establish us in guard us against the evil one and that we have to be people who know and love the truth to stand firm. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think through, um, I, I, I just tend to put myself into these cities as much as I can. And so to be a, a Thessalonian that has converted to, to Christianity and has left all the idolatry of the city and, and to feel like my family doesn't understand me. My business partners don't understand me. Like, uh, it's a struggle now to relate to just about everyone in the city. Um, when Caesar comes to town and I don't pay tribute to him, that's a worry. All that kind of stuff is now part of them. And, and not only that, but like Caesar worship so big that for these people to deny Caesar as God, like can, can mess with the city's good standing in Caesar's world. And so um, there, there's a lot of reasons that they would have been persecuted in the city and um, and to stand apart from the culture of the city. And, and Paul's sort of encouragement here is going like, look, like that is part of following Jesus because his kingdom's not of this world. You're going to look different than the people in this world and they're not going to like you for it. It's going to, it's going to be a struggle. Um, but there's a victory at the end. There's a victory that you have now in Jesus. And one day when he returns, it will truly, uh, the world will be set right. And what is true will be revealed. What is false and, and, and men of lawlessness and Caesar and other people in history, like they're, they're going to die and they're going to be dealt with. And, and that's encouragement in the midst of suffering and struggle mm-hmm. um, that yes, it may not always get panned out in your lifetime, but it will be panned out in the end. Yeah. And so we get a couple Proverbs this week, Proverbs 17, which includes a little bit of a hodgepodge of some general wisdom. Don't treat the poor unkindly. God tests the heart. Don't return kindness with evil. And so you get a few of those. And then the second half yeah. is a lot about I think one of the, in the first half of Proverbs 17, there's some connection to Second Thessalonians, which is really like, keep the long view in mind. Don't seek temporary satisfaction, but a simple and peaceful life. It's a lot of what we just read about. 
In Second Thessalonians. Yeah. And, and the second half of Proverbs 17 is a lot about sort of controlling what you say in mm-hmm. some ways and, and the dangers of, of the tongue, as we will certainly see in James. But yeah. Yeah, it's a good word and a good reminder for me because I generally have a lot to say. And I think it should be a good challenge to people who are super active on social media. And I'm not just saying controversial political opinions, but even the things you post, uh, not giving a second thought to it. What are you communicating? And is it is it pointing to the Lord or not? Yep. And then Proverbs 4 kind of feels like a, a chapter of fatherly advice being passed down. Uh, I love the imagery in this chapter around the righteous kind of being like sunrise and the wicked being mm-hmm. like sunset. Cause that's what we just saw in first Thessalonians, a picture of those who walk in the day and those who walk at night. Um, but yeah. to not swerve off the path. Those last few verses, keep your heart with all vigilance, guard what you love and what you know to be true. We just talked about that. Put away crooked speech and devious talk. It leads us into folly and broken relationship and hurt and stay on the path. Spend time considering and then following the path that God has set out for you. It, re- it requires active focus. You can't do it passively. Yeah. So what should we look for next week in the Old Testament as well as the New? All right. So Old Testament, I would say this is going to require some work, uh, but go back. And as you're reading through the land allotments, read through Genesis 48 and 49 with Jacob's blessings to Israel and the different tribes. It's cool to see what connects and how those blessings played out and where they are now, hundreds of years later. Yeah. And in the New Testament... Um, you'll learn in the intro to Matthew that his audience is Jewish and his goal is to prove that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So pay attention to the ways that he argues this point, even in those first few chapters of Matthew. Yep. And so for me, yeah, I notice the parallels between how Deuteronomy ends and how Joshua ends. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of intentionality yeah. uh, in that. And then uh, as you get to New Testament, look who shouldn't be there. Uh, as you read the genealogy, be like, okay, if I was creating a Jewish genealogy to speak to the purity of the Jewish <laughs> Messiah, uh, notice who stands out or what details are randomly added in there, um, who, who who's included. And then as we're introduced to characters, as we're introduced to the, the, the mom and dad of Jesus, as we're introduced to some other people who show up in the birth scene like would they be considered insiders would they be outsiders what sort of shame would they be dealing with what sort of struggles like who is being held up pretty early in this gospel Mm. and so um i think it's really important as matthew writes so yeah yeah, that's it for y'all thanks thanks everybody (laughs) 